Well, I'm very pleased that I've been asked to come and speak um, on the occasion of this exhibition at the National Archives on Inventors and Inventions. Um, I've just had a few minutes to have a, a little walk around the exhibition and I was fascinated to see that um, among the exhibits was um, a patent um, ex a patent ex exhibit for Benjamin Crosby's patent book stand in 1808, another for George Lynn's um, Lutheran or India summer hat from 1791. I particularly like that one. And also the famous water closet invented by Joseph Brahma in 1778. And these are among some of these, uh, these things that I, w I want to uh, discuss tonight. And, um, but it seems that in an, in an exhibition and series of lectures at the National Archives on this theme of inventors and inventions, I want to address um, a subject only infrequently discussed in the history of British industrialization. Um, and this is the invention of products. Because usually, when um, we look at this whole subject of invention, we think of processes, of, um, of the, the invention of inventions of machines or tools or new sources of um, energy, power, etc. And what I want to put to you as the British Industrial Revolution um, needs to have a fresh look and it, I want to put to you that this was not just an industrial revolution, it was a uh, revolution of products. Now, to set the scene for this, um, let us first turn to the, an event in the life of one of Britain's key radical enlightenment and scientific figures. Oops. Um, this is uh, Joseph Priestley. Now, on the 14th of July, 1791, the second anniversary of the French Revolution, uh, there was a mob shouting anti-French slogans and singing British patriotic songs, thronging the road from Birmingham after looting and torching dissenting um, meeting houses and the homes of the leading radical dissenters um, and manufacturers in the town of Birmingham and the surrounding area. Joseph Priestley, who was scientist, dissenting minister, and radical advocate of the principles of the French Revolution, um, lived in one of these houses. And that night, from a garden half a mile from his home, um, the, um, he, he and his wife watched under clear moonlight as their furniture was thrown out of the windows of their house as scientific instruments were broken and his manuscripts burned. Um, now Priestley was a member of Britain's leading informal scientific institution, scientific association, the Lunar Society. Um, but with these events, he was driven from his home. He soon left for, Amer for America, where he was never very happy. Um, the Lunar Society stopped meeting and a counter-revolutionary ethos suppressed Republican and Enlightenment values. The Birmingham rioters were incensed with um, the town's large manufacturers 
Many of these manufacturers were dissenters. Many of them sympath were sympathizers with the principles of the French Revolution. But um, they were also manufacturers who, in response to um, setbacks in trade caused by the, um, by the revolution and the unrest in France, um, were at that time cutting jobs, uh, cutting wages, and um, subcontracting to smaller producers. So this is what had caused this great outrage by these small producers, who, um, uh, and they were to be found especially in the buckle trades and blamed their troubles not just on the revolution but on French fashions, which had now changed the fashion from buckles um, uh, away from buckles and uh, there was a new fashion for laced shoes and they wanted um, support for their their products and so they joined these local causes to wider um, patriotic and loyalist movements and became part of those church and king rioters and anti-jacobin clubs um, which we associate with this counter-revolutionary movement in um, England at the end of the 18th century. Well, Priestley is a, was a very interesting man. He combined his sympathies for French radicalism with a very British lifestyle. The possessions and the values that Priestley later listed um, for compensation before the Warwickshire Assizes, I think really provide us with insight into just what a man of letters, a religious dissenter, a man of the middling classes living just outside um, Brit one of Britain's leading industrial towns. We see from this listing um, for compensation um, just, what he, um, just what he owned, how he valued his lo uh, the losses of his household goods. Now, he valued these losses at the very substantial sum of 1,307 pounds, eight shillings. Now, at that time, you could have brought, bought a cotton mill for that money, perhaps even two cotton mills if they were very um, uh, smaller ones. These um, goods that he listed included large quantities of um, mahogany and japanned furniture cotton window curtains, carpets, pier and swing looking glasses, tea urns and other tea equipment, large amounts of chinaware, glassware, um, silver-plated table dessert and teaspoons, lots of, of cutlery, um, and a lot of smaller modern and fashionable items of um, ornament and display. Prominent among these furnishings was a range of quality consumer goods. Um, these were created and made fashionable over the course of the 18th century. What stands out um, to any, any, anybody looking at, at these goods is the range, the diversity, the materials, um, the closely identified types and brands of the goods. And if you go through this listing, that Priestley sent in for compensation. We see these brands clearly set out at this time. His house had willow and scotch carpets, not just carpets, but willow and scotch carpets. 
His curtains were cotton, striped, Manchester, or calico. His silverware was plated. He had cut glass. He had nankeen and Wedgwood chinaware. His furniture was mahogany and japanned, and there were tea urns, coffee and teapots, plated buckles, patent candlesticks. Um, now, these goods, what really stands out, what's really distinctive about these goods is they were not goods passed down through generations. They were new, modern goods. Um, they displayed their patents, their mechanized technologies, their new materials in fashionable style. Um, they had a great variety of types and values, and it was this that made at least some of these things accessible to, um, more, to many from the more ordinary middling classes, even to tradespeople, and even down to craftsmen in their times of prosperity. They could afford some of these, some of these commodities. Um, and the big thing about these is all of these goods were made in Britain. Now, pre so Priestley's domestic possessions that he listed with in such detail, with such care, they were Britain's new luxuries. They conveyed modernity, refinement and pleasure. Um, and this was not something that was just among the elites. It was a, a luxury, a modern luxury for the middling classes. And I just want to... Um, cite a passage uh, from the Universal Magazine of Knowledge and Pleasure, which is a wonderful title for a, a magazine. Um, an essay in that magazine at the time was entitled, Of the Manners of the Age as Refined by Luxury. It was published in 1772, and here the question was posed, what can be more universal than the effects of riches on manners in England? The answer was to be found in the commodities now available to all ranks of the people. These things were signs of the general effects of riches spreading through the people and with them more polished manners. The effects on the smaller and middling tradespeople were immense. Well, at this time we see the counter-revolution and patriotic anti-French sentiments certainly cut off a lot of intellectual connections across Europe in this period. Um, there was British and French rivalry throughout the 18th century. Uh, and what this was doing was also, what this had done was also to foster strong identities over industries, over markets and products. Um, so what we see happening is that central to perceptions of British liberty was a very strong sense that part of that that image of their liberty was one of industry, of commerce, and of consumer markets. And these extended out to the middling classes. That was very much a very strong uh, theme throughout um, that, that sense of liberty. Um, and with that, these products then, products sold across Europe and in the American colonies, and they carried all those associations with them. Um, we see the conflict between Britain and France throughout the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic um, Wars between 1793 and 1815. This was a conflict that was not just political, it was economic. It was carried out in a global arena. Um, it was a conflict over empire and markets, 
over industrial development and products. Um, there were, um, we see those, these key economic issues reaching right back um, into a long-standing competition of the British and French, going back to the, the Seven Years' War between 1756 and 63. It reaches forward into the years of the Napoleonic Wars. And um, what we see here is uh, a lot of anxiety in Britain over the ascendancy of French fashion in British markets. Now that's what had been there in the middle of the 18th century. By the time we get to the end of the century, um, it was Britain that was dominating those global um, product markets. Britain then won a war of products in international far, uh, fashion markets by the end of the 18th century. And this was very much a harbinger of the military victory in 1815. Um, <clears throat> now, it did this through a process of invention. So I just would like to take you through how that happened. All those products that were sold on those, those um, European markets and global markets were the subject of invention as much as were those more celebrated inventions of the steam engine Cast iron, and um, cast iron and crucible steel and all kinds of other materials that we see developed in that period. We have to look at innovation as extending much um, way far beyond processes, beyond the tools, machines, materials and energy that drove the industrial sector. It's, we have to see this invention as extending out to the products as well. Now, some of these new products were imitations of former European and Oriental luxury goods, and they were now made in hybrid materials and alloys. They were processed with coal, not wood. Um, they were goods that um, would be maybe restyled or very often completely new. Um, what we have happening in, in Europe, but especially in Britain, was the invention of entirely new varieties, new qualities of goods, and especially this, um, where Britain especially succeeded was in the production of um, the whole range of cotton textiles. This was um, just as important as the new spinning, weaving, and printing techniques. The products um, were just as important, and I want to stress that those manufacturers, they were obsessed with being able to offer customers quality and variety in all those products. Um, now with uh, Britain's technological leap forward came the ascendancy of certain goods. And these are goods that really became associated with, um, with the British, with uh, uh, British industry. They were textiles, glass and earthenware, metal goods and machinery. And the British invented and branded these consumer products as avidly as they did their tools and machines. Um, so we have them offering. Um, I'm just not. Yeah, we have them offering instead of imported Indian calicos, which would be fabricated into dress designs in Britain once they had been imported. They produce cylinder printed um, these uh, cylinder printed calicos 
and especially ones that would be reached out, reach out to the lower middling classes, to even to the laboring poor, the servants. Um, these were just as important as the well-known broadcloth. Sheffield silver plate and steel cutlery was another big example. There was Staffordshire and especially Wedgwood earthenware. Um, there were Birmingham Japan trays, cut steel chatelaines, buttons, buckles, brassware, silver plate, plate um, candlesticks, furniture handles, silver plated coffee pots, you name it. They could produce this. These became the new European desirables. But it's interesting. Economic historians have given scant attention um, to these products. And this is, um, this is a, a strange thing. Um, consumption is studied by the, huge, the whole range of the social sciences. It's one of the most popular areas, but it's very little studied by economists. Um, and ditto economic historians. Uh, product innovation, but we, you know, we really just do have to see though that product innovation brought in its gain, um, in its um, wake, productivity gains that we haven't even tried to estimate yet. It's recently that economists have um, claimed that estimates of productivity growth over the whole last part, half of the 20th century have been deeply underestimated um, because they don't adjust for quality improvements. They don't adjust for um, new products. And um, if we look back to the 18th century, this is also absolutely apparent. Cotton quality improvements and new varieties of, uh, varieties of cotton goods in the last third of the 18th century were absolutely um, made, it made a huge difference. And um, we also see a whole range of other um, new products coming in. The introduction of, of um, improvements in oil lamps in the late 18th century, of gas lighting in the early 19th century. There was also the part played by new services, um, especially medical interventions such as smallpox inoculation in 1796. Now, what economist would want to deny their significance to economic growth? And yet, none of these things feature in any of our measures of productivity gains over this period. So I'd like to put it to you that those productivity gains have been deeply um, underestimated. Uh, okay. Now, with the tools, machines, and new power sources, um, the division of labor and the factories that we associate with the British technology um, in the later 18th century came a whole range of new um, British products. Um, these products were high design goods. They invoked art and industry. Their quality um, went with price competitiveness. So people weren't just going to buy these goods because they were cheap. They were buying them because they were fashion leaders, they were quality goods, and they worked. And that was the crucial thing. Um, and again, they were products that were invented, um, branded, and even patented um, through this period. Um, uh, they, um, we have contemporaries embarking on a national project 
to create these consumer goods and to look to create consumer goods that would compete with the French, would compete with those Asian luxury imports that were coming in from India and China. Um, there's a national project for designing, inventing, um, patenting new British goods. Um, so we see with this, what, what happens is along with this we see an explosion of new intricate consumer goods which appear alongside the steam engine and those new iron technologies. And um, they're the range um, that I've mentioned. Um, and we have manufacturers and retailers patenting and celebrating these goods. They were goods that carried attributes of convenience, of ingenuity, of novelty, taste, and style. And those were the key words that we, we associate with these. Um, there was indeed at this time a national debate on taste design and product development. Um, and we see, I think, I would argue that um, the result was the emergence of a new generic product that gets branded British um, with this process. Now, one of these, um, one of the, the um, ways in which this, this debate took place was in the Society of, for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures, and Commerce, which was founded in 1754. It was a subscription-based private organization um, founded by the painter and social activist William Shipley, and um, it conceived a very close connection between creating British products and inventing, and that was very much the platform uh, on which it, um, it set out. It was opposed to patents, referred to patents as monopolies, and instead preferred to offer um, awards or premiums um, for new designs, for novel British luxury goods, for the, disco the discovery and use of um, British or indigenous colonial raw materials in making things, um, making products in, in, in other, other types of materials. Um, one of the founder members, Robert Dossie, argued that Britain needed to add design initiative to her superiority in machines and manual dexterity if she was to hope to rival France. Um, so that's their, their platform. It was a language of imitation and invention. Um, and it also took place in what we're more familiar with, that, um, that whole um, debate takes place in the patents um, that were taken out at the time. And it's patents, not premiums, which are most widely used by historians as an index of inventiveness. Um, now, we, know, we see now that these aren't really quite so reliable an index as we would hope. Um, they were taken out, these uh, patents were taken out not just for capital goods, um, for technical processes, but as I've, I've emphasized, for products. Um, they were taken out for new products, for new designs, for ornamentation. Um, sometimes the advantages in doing this were questionable and quite often we see such patents, the value of them was more in the, uh, as an advertisement. Um, than it was in an actual um, protection of intellectual property rights. 
Um, now, these patents were very expensive um, in England. They were in Britain. They cost between 120 and 350 pounds, um, depending on um, what parts of the country they covered. Uh, the patent system, we, we know, goes back to 1624. The French had some, they, they relied on privileges until their Patent Act of 1791. Um, now, a lot of inventors actually preferred not to take out patents, so we're missing a whole lot of invention if we just take um, these patents as an index. Uh, Birmingham, for instance, was one of the places of the most prolific invention of goods, gadgets, new materials, um, of machinery, and yet over this whole period, 1680 to 1800, it only claimed 102 patents. Um, another big place of a lot of inventive activity was uh, Staffordshire, and there the pottery industry, very well known for its inventiveness, but there's very little, um, very, very few patents taken out there for any of these improvements. Um, now, I did um, um, quite a lot of work on these um, patents, and I'm just going to show you some of the results of this, uh, and um, did a selection over the period between 1627 and, and 1825 um, out of a group of metalwares, glass, ceramics, furniture, clocks, um, and watches, and finishing techniques in the consumer goods um, trade uh, area, and uh, this yielded 1,610 patents, and many of those concentrated in the 18th century. Most of the concentration of those was in that period. And that group that I selected out for those industries um, made up about 30% of the total patents taken out over that whole period. Um, now, what, we, what I found in then um, sorting out just what these patents were for is the high number in amongst these that were taken out for materials and ornamentation, for new products, for variations within these products, um, for finishing, for imitating. And if you just look um, down the, um, there's, there's a whole list of these there. Um, we can look at patents for embossing, gilding, and damasking, um, patents for making and ornamenting frames for pictures and looking glasses, patents for molding and ornaments for building coaches and um, coach furniture, uh, paper mache and japanware. Um, a whole range of things that you wouldn't really expect that people actually took out patents for. But this took out a very high, pro a high proportion of these, um, these patents. Uh, now, this um, product revolution that we see being revealed in the range of, um, of uh, projects and premiums out of the Society of Arts and also in the patents um, that we have. It wasn't just a domestic event. It found its context in a global economy. 
Um, it certain, I, it would, I, I would argue that it really marks out a kind of British pathway of providing quality consumer goods, of doing something that was distinctive from those French and Asian luxuries. Um, these were quality consumer goods for a rapidly expanding middling class market, and one not just at home, but abroad. And so we had philosophers and a lot of pundits at the time talking about a new luxury, a good luxury, um, uh, a luxury that would have a big impact on world commerce in sending out these kinds of goods to, um, to other economies. So we have the British developing these new products in response to these European luxuries, and they brand these goods with their British identity markers. Um, now, the, the products that were produced were also closely um, connected with the success of British technology. People wanted these things because they were also technological successes, technological feats. Um, Huntsman crucible steel. That was the kind of stu steel that could produce the quality that was associated with British English buckles. Um, there was the coining and minting machinery, the presses and stamps that were invented through this period. They were responsible for providing the variety and quality of British buttons, of metals, of brass furniture wear, um, and British consumers wanted these things, but Europe's consumers wanted them even more. And they soon come to swamp European um, markets. And they did so not because they were cheap, but because they were good. They worked. Um, so we have a lot of these, um, and, and we get a sort of lot of branding taken, taking place on these commodities. There's a sort of Birmingham buckles, they are recognized across, uh, they were recognized right across Europe. Um, so I think that the products went with that technology. Now let's look at some of those products that became international brands by the end of the 18th century. Um, or the Argand lamp, which was actually bought up um, by Matthew Bolton was originally invented in France, but bought up by Matthew Bolton, who then owned um, the patent. Now, one of the, the, the things about these, um, these goods, we see uh, what they are, Manchester checks, Lancashire printed calicos, English glass, Staffordshire um, chinaware, Birmingham buckles, a um, lot of these goods. Uh, how was it that they became world-class commodities by the last third of the 18th century? Well, I think one of the reasons they um, became so well known is that they were, they traveled. These were goods that traveled. They were portable. Dress is one of the ways those goods was, was, um, was portray per portrayed. Dress had been long dominated by international uh, fashions led by the French. Um, but this gave way, for men's clothing at least, to English suits, were fabric and detail. Were, they were the things that really counted. They provided the branding. There were English stockings, gloves, watch chains, buttons, buttons and buckles. And we have kind of international dress codes that were internationally 
um, recognized. Along with these, there were internationally recognized architectural spaces, um, which were kind of stage settings for social performances that were carried out there um, in internationally recognized codes of etiquette. Um, so this was furnishings, the, the place for furnishings, ornament, dining, and teaware. The whole material edifice had to be um, provided there, set out in the correct way, and used um, correctly. They all acquired international codes. So successful goods achieved an international ascendancy. They were not domestic goods. They were international goods. They were um, had this international ascendancy above all because they were fashionable. And the British knew that the route to successful consumer goods um, in markets abroad was not by trying to make these um, adaptable to local cultural um, frameworks, but instead to aggressively make these British commodities fashionable. So everybody would want to um, have the most up-to-date, the best, um, to have that whole thing um, set out there. Um, so they came to identify fashion with commercial modernity. Now, Britain's trading middling classes then came to define their modernity by their possessions, um, their possessions of newly invented goods, not inherited goods, not goods, um, uh, luxury goods acquired in, in other contexts. Um, but they looked to have newly invented goods made especially by mechanical techniques. This was um, really to, to have the really up-to-date thing. And Josiah Tucker um, talked about this in his comment on liberty. Um, their possessions, he said, were a sign of their liberty. England being a free country where riches got by trade are no disgrace and where property is also safe against the prerogatives of either princes or nobles, and where every person may make what display he pleases of his wealth. So these were new fashion goods, and they were technological achievements. They were ingenious contrivances. They were attractive gadgets. They were sleek little masterpieces that worked. And that's what people really wanted. Um, and I think it's really what the classic British toys, what they called toys in the 18th century, these um, um, little ornamental metal goods um, and um, uh, small consumer wear uh, made of iron and steel, of silver plate, all manner of alloys, brass, tin, pin, uh, pinchbeck, tutania, etc. They were uh, a part of that whole world of those sleek little um, goods. And um, we have, uh, um, I just want to, yes, one of our um, great in inventors of these is Matthew Bolton. And he knew what the secret, um, what the secret to the success of these Birmingham buckles was. Um, they were so successful in international markets that Imitations were made of them in Paris as late as 1810, and these bore false British identity marks. French tried to make them, but knew they couldn't sell them unless they were British. 
So they had these false marks. And Matthew Bolton knew the reasons for this British domination of the international buckle trade. And he said that here are secrets in the buckle trade which foreigners are stranger to, strangers to. They cannot make chapes, um, the part, um, part of the buckle where, which um, links it uh, where the... They cannot make chapes in Spain or Portugal so good and cheap as in England as they have no slitting or rolling mills and their iron is not so fit for chapes. So all that discussion that we have had through all our histories of the Industrial Revolution about the importance of iron processing, the importance of these rolling and slitting mills, what it comes down to is that they really made great buckles and people wanted the buckles. So this is T.S. Ashton's wave of gadgets and this is indeed what it was. Um, the gadgets demonstrated a technological prescience um, that, was, that reached out to scientific instruments, to tools and machines, um, and it was the metals and what could be done with them that really intrigued consumers. Metals that looked like diamonds because they were made of, of cut steel. And buttons, uh, buttons, tea urns, coffee pots, tankers and candlesti candlesticks, a lot of these um, made in plated ware. We have the, um, and there you can see the way that the, the copper was fused, this, this plated ware, the copper was just fused between thin layers of silver and you get com goods that come out and just look wonderful. Um, now, a lot of these products had become international brands by the end of the 18th century, and um, uh, a lot of them were also factory goods. Um, textiles made in factories, but also a lot of the metal goods made in factories which celebrated their patented products. Now, the International Tourist Route took in these showcase factories in Birmingham and Sheffield in the 18th century. They were beautiful structures, a lot of them architectural, great architectural monuments. Um, the showcase factories were a part of the way of selling the product. The goods were about technology. Most knew that the key to success of these in these new goods, um, these new decorative goods, was the materials they were made of, the machines that made their replication possible. And so we have stamped brass and crucible steel. These were high-tech and fashion together. And I think it's very interesting that um, Mrs. Montague, the great paragon of the arts, um, who ran wonderful salons in, um, in London, she saw a new patriotism in her patronage of Soho ornament. Um, that's the ornament produced in Matthew Bolton's uh, factory at Soho, where um, she challenged him, she challenged him to triumph over the French in taste and to embellish your country with useful inventions and elegant productions. Now these products conveyed other British symbols of political virtue, um, of manners and civility, and here we pass to Josiah Wedgwood. Um, and Wedgwood invoked patriotic themes. He drew on history paintings. He um, 
went to narratives of virtue drawn from the Roman Republic. Um, and he uses these as the motifs in his, his products. We find similarly um, an, an, a similar story in the production of English glass, which was kind of an effort to imitate the glories of Venetian glass, but turned, it was changed into a new product, turned to new forms and styles. It could be cut. Um, it could make new products like dessert dishes and chandelier glass. Sheffield plate could produce all these uh, whole range of other objects, of buckles. Um, we could have that those produced in buttons and snuff boxes, etc. Um, there were a whole range of, um, of these goods that uh, were produced in through this way, such as Wedgwood, a, a good combination between Wedgwood and Matthew Bolton, putting together um, ceramic uh, plaques with cut steel. Now these goods conveyed taste and manners. Um, in Wedgwood, Wedgwood's view, they would mark out British identity as much as political culture and military and naval success. Now he branded his creamware and his Etruscan-inspired um, uh, vaseware. Now these were, he gave these um, symbols of British liberty of um, citizenship and virtue. That is what they were associated with. The vases were displayed on mantelpieces. Um, we get the Portland vase here. They were displayed on mantelpieces. They were set under history paintings. They were set in libraries, dining rooms, and public reception rooms. They very much symbolized masculine, republican virtue. Um, they used it often, they were produced in a series of imitation materials based on precious stones and ores, and they became collectibles in their own right. So we have a whole series of things, and the idea of the collection is also attached to many of these commodities. And this moves on in later in the century into the production of a whole series of other items which become collectibles. Uh, Lacquered snuff boxes, medals, cameos, intaglios, uh, little Japan trays, um, a little of um, the, the Prince of Wales uh, displayed on uh, on a piece of, on a Japan snuff box, um, medallions, which became a new form of emblematic um, sculpture. These were political statements. They were p collectibles. They were excellent gifts. Uh, and we have all that machinery that was used for coining, for um, making buttons earlier on, for buckle making, that was easily adapted into producing this whole r range of other new consumer collectibles. And if we go back to Joseph Priestley, he counted among his losses in the Birmingham riots his medals, um, like his medals of Newton, of Franklin, of Wilkinson, as well as one, as, as one of himself. And he also had lost a large oval cameo of Newton in ceramic. So these were very much the, the new products of the, the period. Now, the British ran their own Atlantic World shopping center, and it was not 
as Adam Smith thought, an artificial edifice of the navigation acts, um, where Adam Smith had written, a great empire has been established for the sole purpose of raising up a nation of customers who should be obliged to buy from the shops of our different producers all the goods with which they could supply them. The home consumers have been burdened with the whole expense of maintaining and defending that empire. Now, Smith conveyed that this was costing the British, um, that empire was costing the British a whole, gr a, a great deal um, to keep up that, uh, um, <clears throat> that nation of customers. But in fact, that shopping center stocked the newest and the best. Europe bought and Britain shopped because America bought. And these goods, these products were out there in the American colonies. Immediately they were produced. It was the high fashion um, place. And um, the Americans bought Staffordshire earthenware, English lead glass crystals, Sheffield plate, English light furnishings. Um, by the last decade of the, of the 18th century, so convinced were the British of the distinctive national identity of their quality consumer goods um, that they thought that they could take these not just to America, not just throughout Europe, but out to China, and that this would be the new market that they would move into. And they had serious hopes. Um, the gov both the government and the East India Company had really serious hopes of breaching those Chinese markets. They hoped the Chinese court would recognize the superiority and the modernity, the novelty of the British products. Um, so Viscount McCartney's embassy to China um, thought this embassy went out to convey George III's aspirations of communicating the arts and comforts of life to those parts of the world where it appeared they had been wanting. Well, the Qianlong Emperor sent McCartney packing, sent him back with the message, we have never valued ingenious articles, nor do we have the slightest need of your country's manufacturers. Okay. Now, British trade missions um, to open markets for their goods in China are now a regular occurrence, as we're all aware. Um, a lot of those goods are now fabricated in, at least in part, in China. Um, and we know from the recent case of MG Rover uh, that the product is even more important than the production. Um, and ironically, those British brand names and designs, many of which were invented and some patented during the Industrial Revolution, um, in response to imports of Chinese luxury goods, and we can think of Wedgwood itself, these goods are now becoming um, the intellectual property of the Chinese. And this is what the case um, of MG Rover was about. Uh, and I'm just gonna stop there. Thank you. Thank you.